If you've been with us, we are spending the four Sundays of Advent looking at what is known as the four servant songs of Isaiah. If you're unfamiliar with these, these are four little passages in the latter half of Isaiah. Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, Isaiah 49, 1 through 6, Isaiah 50, 4 through 9, and then Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, which is the most famous of the servant songs. And these servant songs are these places in Isaiah where the author starts talking about this mysterious character known as the servant of the Lord. Or sometimes the servant himself is speaking about himself. But what is clear in, in the outworking of Isaiah's uh, book is that this servant is, is an important character. He's a key character. He's the hope, not only for the restoration of God's people in exile, but actually for the whole world. See, he is the one who's going to bring justice to the nations, Isaiah 42. He is the one who's going to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, that's Isaiah 49. He is the one who will not shrink back from his calling. He will not fail, even if it means his own suffering and death, which is Isaiah 50 and 53. And friends, there's, no, there's been no shortage of ink spilled as to the identity of this mysterious servant. Uh, if you're into these sorts of things, you know there are lots of perspectives. Some people want to know, is it Isaiah himself? Is it the nation of Israel? Is it someone else? But our take is that the New Testament looks at the life of Jesus and concludes, oh, this is the servant of the Lord. He is the fulfillment of these songs in his life and his death and in his resurrection. He is the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we believe that the servant is the Messiah, and the Messiah is Jesus. And so what we have said is that these servant songs are like the earliest job description for Jesus. That is, for who he's to be and what he's to do in the world. We've even said, I said last week, that these are likely the passages where Jesus discovered his vocation and how to go about his calling as the Messiah. And you might be thinking, because some of you did ask me this, what do you mean discovered his calling? Isn't Jesus God? Doesn't he already know his calling? Well, in the wonderful mystery that is the incarnation, Jesus is the only human being to ever live to have two natures. That is, he's fully God and he's fully man. And yet our confessional documents say that these two natures of Jesus do not mix with each other, meaning that Jesus does not borrow from his divine nature to help out his human nature. So for instance, although Jesus in his divine nature is omnipresent, in his human nature he's limited to one body, right? So also, his divine na nature is omniscient. He knows all things. And yet his human nature had to grow and to learn like the rest of us. Luke's gospel says that Jesus, the child, he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. Jesus had to learn to walk, even though he created walking, right? So also, there was a process of Jesus, the human being, learning that he was the Messiah and how he was to go about being the Messiah. And I really do believe that he was immersed in these Old Testament scriptures like every faithful Jewish family. And these passages in Isaiah are the places, I think, where the Spirit revealed to Jesus, this is you. This is how you were to go about your mission with the gentleness of Isaiah 42, with the scope of, of Isaiah 49, not just Israel, but the whole world. And now today, from Isaiah 50 
with the dependence and the trust of the model disciple. So, all that said, let's look together today at the third servant song. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? It's Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 11. The servant says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are, who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lag down in torments. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray for the preaching of God's word. Almighty God, in this Advent season, we are reminded that your light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And so we ask for your light now. We ask that your Holy Spirit, who first inspired these words of Scripture, would shine now in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Should we see it, please? Isaiah 50 is telling us that among all the things that Jesus is as the fulfillment of Isaiah 50, he is also a model disciple. He's a model disciple. The servant is the ultimate model of discipleship. He shows us what it's supposed to look like to be a faithful disciple of God. And so I want you to see two things today from our passage. Number one, what he models for us. And two, what it means for us. So what he models for us and what it means for us. First of all, what does Jesus model for us? Well, in short, everything a disciple is supposed to be. He's like the prototype. He's the example par excellence, as they say. And this is, by the way, this is how we know that the servant in this passage is ultimately pointing to Jesus. Because in Isaiah 50, the servant, again, is speaking autobiographically, so he's talking about himself. And look what he says in verse 5. He says, the Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. Now, who, who else can say that and mean it honestly, right? God spoke to me, and I did exactly what he said. I was not rebellious. Israel cannot say that. In this moment, in this passage, in this book, they are in exile right now precisely because they were rebellious. So they did not open their ears to the word of God. 
So the servant of Isaiah 50 cannot be Israel. In fact, it can't be any of us. The only person who can say this and not be a liar is Jesus. He's the only one who is perfectly obedient to the will of the Father. He's the only model disciple. And I want you to see that he specifically models for us a few of the most important characteristics of being a disciple. First, notice, he models for us dependence. Dependence. In verse 4, the servant says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. Four times in this passage, actually, he refers to him as the Lord God. You notice it's at the beginning of verse 4, verse 5, verse 7, and verse 9. This is a special name for God. It's a longer title of God's name, Yahweh, and it specifically emphasizes his sovereignty and his superiority. What the servant is saying is, I'm in a discipleship relationship with God, and God is the master. He, He is the mentor, and I am the mentee. He's the master himself, the Lord God. And he says his master has specifically given him the tongue of those who are taught. That is, the tongue of the learned. An instructed tongue, a a disciple's tongue. You might remember this harkens back to last week where we talked about in Isaiah 49 that the chief calling of the servant is to speak. Speak to the whole world. But this week we actually see where he gets the words to speak. Notice he gets them from God through daily dependence on him. Like verse 4, morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. That's beautiful. Morning by morning, God wakes up the servant to fill his ears with his own word. This means that the servant only speaks as one who has first been spoken to. He only teaches as one who has first been taught. He only teaches what has been taught to him. And where does he learn this? He does this through daily communion and dependence upon God. Think of all the times in the Gospels when Jesus withdrew from the crowds. He went away, he went away even from his own disciples to be alone with God. One of those examples is Luke 5.15. I love this. It says, yet the news about Jesus spread all the more so that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. In fact, Jesus says in John 12, 49, that he does not speak anything of his own authority, but only what the Father has told him to say. And again, how did Jesus know what to say? Because he lived in daily dependence upon God. Morning by morning, his ear was awakened to God to hear as those who are taught. So we see how he learned uh, how he learned to speak, what to speak. But he also we also hear learn here the purpose of his speaking. I love this. Look at verse four, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Literally, that I may learn the word that sustains the weary. He learns this word from his daily morning appointment with God. Once again, the heart of the servant, the heart of Jesus. It's for the weary, for the bruised reeds, for the faintly burning wicks. And he knows, he knows just what to say to the weary soul. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He knows the word for the weary. Second, notice not only his dependence, notice also that he models determination and endurance. Whatever the Lord has asked him to do, he does it with true perseverance. He will not be turned back. Verse 5, the Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. One pastor interprets this, he's saying, I did not chicken out. (laughs) I did not run away from what you asked me to do just because it was hard, just because it was met with opposition or suffering. Verse 6, he says, I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. All those things, all those are acts intended to humiliate you. They're intended to make you turn around and abandon the path that you were walking on. But Jesus was not deterred. He set his face like a flint, it was like a rock, towards the cross. He would not shrink back, no matter the opposition, the suffering, or the humiliation. What this means is one pastor says that Jesus has this rare combination of attractive tenderness and unbending strength. Attractive tenderness and unbending strength. He sustains the weary with a word, and he also runs through a brick wall in obedience to God. You probably know this. Some people are tender. Some people are strong. Rarely are people tender and strong. But Jesus is both. His gentleness and grit. His endurance is beautiful. In fact, the book of Hebrews encourages us to look long and hard at Jesus so that we too can run the race before us with endurance. Hebrews 12 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Lastly, what does he model for us? He actually models for us in this passage the ultimate mark of Christian Christian discipleship. What is that mark? It's trust. He trusts in the Lord his God to work out everything in the end. In verses 7 to 9, he trusts that in the end he will not be disgraced. He trusts that he will not be put to shame. He trusts that God will vindicate him. He trusts that all his adversaries will wear out like a garment, like a moth-eaten sweater. But the Lord's verdict will endure forever. Verse 9, he says, Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Brothers and sisters, this is the ultimate mark of a disciple because his identity is so grounded in what God says about him that it doesn't matter what anybody else says about him. God's verdict is the only one that matters. He says, if he has vindicated you, it doesn't matter who else does. Brothers and sisters, this is how you get through the trials and sufferings of life. This is how Jesus got through the trials and suffering of his life with confidence that if God is for you, who can be against you? Jesus trusted his father no matter what. Even when his father said, you're going to die on a cross for the sins of the whole world, but trust me, I'm going to raise you up three days later. He trusted him. 
And the Lord did what he said. He vindicated him. As you see this model that is set before us, the main point of this first point is just to marvel at the beauty of Jesus as a model disciple. He is everything a disciple is supposed to be. And brothers and sisters, it is a thing to behold. I don't know about you, but I've been watching the, the Beatles documentary on Disney+. Plus. We have Disney+, Plus because we have three kids. And, uh, but this documentary is pretty amazing. It's by the Oscar-winning director of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson combed through over 60 hours of never-before-seen film footage, and then over 150 hours of audio content. And he got it down to just a mere eight hours. Okay, it's a three-part documentary in eight hours. But it gives us an unparalleled access to the creative process behind the final studio album from the most famous band in the world. And if you watch it, some people might find it a little boring. April's like, why are you watching this? This is terribly boring. But I think it's brilliant. Because I'm watching these guys rehearse, and I, I keep saying I am watching some of the best to ever do it. Maybe the best to ever do it. Do you ever give it, get that feeling when you're watching truly elite musicians or athletes or artists perform like you're watching greatness? Like you're just lucky to experience this? Friends, that's what it's like watching Jesus fulfill Isaiah 50. He is the best to ever do it. He's the model disciple. He models for us ultimate dependence, ultimate endurance, ultimate trust. He models everything we aspire to be. And it really is beautiful to behold. But secondly, I want to ask today, what does it mean for us? That's what he models for us, but what does it mean for us? And really, this is the most important question of the day for what you do right here at this moment. Because if we just say that it means that we should just follow Jesus' model, then we're missing the main point. If we end here and we say, now go, do likewise, amen, that is not good news. Because as Tim Keller says, Jesus Christ is only an example, will crush you. You'll never be able to live up to it. Indeed, it will crush you if Jesus is only your model. Because the truth is, you don't depend on God daily like Jesus did. Neither do I. You don't rise up morning by morning to receive the word of God. We are more like the disciples who went to pray with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and fell asleep on the job. That's me. The truth is, you don't endure with determination through the sufferings of life and the challenges of following Jesus. You and I are more like the Apostle Peter who turned his back on Jesus and denied even knowing him three times. We are rebellious. We chicken out all the time, especially if the stakes are high. It's very easy to get me to turn right around. Long before it comes to being struck in the face or someone pulling out my beard, they just got to look at me funny and I'm out of there. The truth is, friends, we don't trust God like Jesus did. Like Thomas, we doubt him. We demand proofs and evidence rather than trusting the word of God. And friends, because we don't trust God to work things out in the end, we live these lives of anxiety and fear because we feel like it's all up to us. 
Because we don't believe that God is for us, then it really, really matters who else is for us. Whether it's our parents, or that boy, or that girl, or the boss. We can't sleep at night if someone is against us. Because we don't trust in God's vindication. We spend our lives trying to vindicate ourselves. You get it? Jesus Christ is only an example. We'll crush you. You'll never be able to live up to it. But, but, the quote continues, but Jesus Christ as the lamb will save you. As, as only an example, he'll crush you as the lamb, he will save you. Because before Jesus is our model, he's our mediator. Before he is in our example, he is our savior. Brothers and sisters, the whole point of Isaiah 50 is that the servant does all these things precisely because we cannot. He succeeds where everyone else failed. Everyone before him, Adam, was rebellious and did not trust God and listen to his word. Israel was rebellious and did not trust God and listen to his word. And everyone after him, you and I, are rebellious. We do not trust God and listen to his word. None of us are model disciples. And neither were the original 12, if you're following my illustrations earlier. All of them were doubters and deniers, betrayers and bystanders. But friends, thanks be to God. The good news is that your status before God is not based on your performance as a disciple, but on his. The gospel is not go and do likewise, but because you can't and you don't do likewise, he did it for you. He lived the life that you should have lived as a model disciple, but you get the credit for it. He died the death that we deserved for our failures as disciples. He rose again in victory over our greatest adversary. And friends, if you turn from your sins and you place your trust in all that Jesus is and did for you, that you can say, like verse 9, Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Or with the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Friends, if you believe this, you will have a vindication, a validation at the center of your life that will more and more free you from needing validation from anyone else. See, what does this mean for us? First, Jesus is your Savior, and only then is he your model. Savior first, and then, your, then a model. Because now, with the new heart that you've been given by God, a heart of flesh, and with this new spirit that has been put within you, now you return and you seek to follow Jesus' example but not in order to earn God's favor because you already have it in Christ out of grateful obedience. Now you follow the how much more principle. What I mean by that? Well, if Jesus was dependent on his father and needed to commune with him every day, how much more do we need to do the same? If Jesus didn't speak to others before first speaking with God, how much more do we need to do the same? If Jesus had to learn the word that sustains the weary, how much more 
do we, so that we're not piling on more burdens to the heavy laden. If Jesus needed to have his ears open to God's voice in order to endure the suffering and the opposition of others, how much more do we? And if Jesus needed to trust in the vindication of his Father in order to overcome the lies of the world, how much more do we? Friends, that's essentially how our passage concludes in verses 10 and 11. The servant actually concludes speaking in verse 9. And now the author steps back in. And he invites us specifically out of the sin of self-sufficiency and into a trusting dependence on the same God that the servant trusts. He says, if you live by his light, you will have hope even in the darkness. You have a peace that passes all understanding. But he says, if you live by your own light, by your own torch, by your own self-sufficiency, if you try to deal with life's darkness on your own, it will only end in grief. He calls you to trust in the same way that the servant did. Brothers and sisters, I saw a model disciple this week in an 18-year-old girl named Shelby Houston. I've never met Shelby. I don't know her. But I came across a, a eulogy that she gave at her father's funeral this past week. Her father was named Richard Houston. He was a 21-year veteran in a Texas police department. He was killed in the line of duty earlier in December while responding to a domestic disturbance call. He left behind a wife and three kids, including Shelby. I don't know if you've seen this on social media. If you haven't, you need to go look it up. In her eulogy, Shelby said that because growing up in a police family, she had heard of other families who had lost members in the line of duty, but she didn't know how she would feel when it happened to her. And she said she felt anger and sadness and grief and confusion. And part of her wishes, she could despise the man who killed her father. But she says she can't get her heart to hate him. Listen to her powerful words. All I can do is I find myself hoping and praying for this man to truly know Jesus. I thought this might change if the man continued to live. But when I heard the news that he was in stable condition, part of me was relieved. My prayer is that someday down the road, I get to spend some time with the man who shot my father. Not to scream at him, not to yell at him, not to scold him, but to simply tell him about Jesus. Friends, there's only one place that you learn how to respond to a tragedy like this. It's from the one who took our tragedy upon himself. If he has forgiven the massive debt of our sin, how much more? Should we forgive others, even when the debt seems insurmountable? Brothers and sisters, first, Jesus is a model disciple for us, that is, in place of us. And then he is a model disciple through us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, like he was for Shelby, like he was for all who called upon the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Let's ask God to help us. Our Father, I pray that as looking at the, the model disciple of Jesus today, I pray it wouldn't crush us. Lord, if it starts to crush us, I pray it would drive us to Jesus to see what he did for us in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and all of that is credited to us. Lord, give us 
a vindication in the center of our soul that frees us from needing it from anyone else. And then, Lord, in that freedom, let us come back to his model. Lord, I pray that what we say and what we do, we look more and more like our Savior because he lives in us, because he is at work in us. Lord, show us the way and bring much glory through the fruit that we bear in our lives. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.